AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to the AT&T Threat Track Show for January 26, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. It's good to see you. Good to be here. Okay. And uh, we have here Matt Kaiser, and uh, boy, you're a familiar face on this program. It's good to have you here as Can't well. Can't get rid of me, Brad. <laughs> and we have John Hogaboom joining us today. Welcome and I'm John. here just for color commentary today. Color and commentary. <laughs> yeah. All right. No heckling, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's get right into it here. And uh, Jim, there were a couple of stories that had come out uh, associated with the uh, most common passwords. And um, of course, common passwords should never be used in the same sentence. So help us out with this. Yeah, I, I first saw the story in the register, but they were refer referring back to a, a report put out by um, Keeper Security. Basically, these guys got their hands on 10 million passwords that were made public uh, through data breaches in 2016. And they reported on the, the most common passwords. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing we've been talking about for years. These most common passwords are all really bad. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be using them, but obviously people still do. Sorry for the interruption, Jim. But these uh, were there any indications of where these passwords had come from? I mean, you, you sent a compromised accounts, but did they say anything about what types of accounts or anything like that? I did not. I did not see anything, and I haven't dug uh, deeply into their the report about which breaches these were. These came from, but you know, over the last few years, we've seen similar reports from a number of the big breaches that hit the the news. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure which ones in 2016 were covered here, but. Okay, and I think perhaps that's a little bit significant. Uh, I guess we could assume the worst in this case. So um, what I tend to think of is probably a worst case scenario is if somebody's protecting their email account with a really crummy password, that's probably a really bad thing because it probably is what can be used to reset their banking account yeah, yeah. or reset whatever else account they have. Um, but if it's, you know, if, it, if it's sort of a, you know, it's the password to get into a site so I can download the updates for my computer or something like that. Perhaps that's not as significant. So I, I just wanted to sort of put a little color on that on that point and forgive the interruption. Continue. Yeah, no, and that's that's a good point. And it isn't clear to me which which breaches these 10 million came from, but you know they were they listed the top 25 in a little in a little graphic that. Keeper Security put on their blog, and all of those top twenty, all but two of those top twenty-five, were obviously simple patterns based on a QWERTY keyboard. All of them can be easily brute forced. Seven of the top fifteen were shorter. Six characters are shorter. You know, the most popular was one, two, three, four, five, six. The next one was one two three four five six seven eight nine. You know, then came QWERTY, which you know is 
right there on the top row of the letters on the keyboard. And, you know, things like 1111111 and 123123, 9876543321. All of them except two were simple patterns uh, based on the keyboard. You know, the as I said, like QWERTY, 123456, or one of them that was down in the, like, 24, fourth or something was the bottom row of the keyboard, ZXCVBNM, which isn't one I would have recognized until I actually looked at the keyboard. And then they've got the the ones that kind of look a little more complex, but really aren't. 1Q, 2W, 3E, 4R, well, that's, you know, those are the top two rows of the keyboard, and you're just going, you know, down one key, then back up to the top row and down one key and so forth. The two that were... Well, and then there was password. <laughs> because they're following instructions, Jim. They, they're doing exactly what they're instructed to do, put in password. <laughs> yeah. The, the two that weren't one of those patterns were actually kind of interesting. And uh, as a result of this, I was referred back to a blog post that apparently I had missed back in July of last, last year by Graham Cluley, because I follow his blog but he, he had posted something on the Tripwire blog, and the, these two passwords were 18ATCSKD2W, which is kind of random there, and it doesn't really matter the, what it was. And the other one was similar to a 3RS, RJS something, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what Graham concluded from from his research uh, last summer was that these two passwords are probably not being actually done by human beings. These are two, these are passwords that appear to be uh, programmed into some bots. And these are programmatically generated accounts. Mm -hmm. So this may actually answer, or go ahead and continue before I interrupt here, but it may actually answer the first question that I had. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so the, what, they, what they believe, or what, what he believed in, uh, the, you know, that these were programmatically ge- generated. So these, these uh, password databases that got breached apparently have a fair number of accounts that were programmatically generated potentially by, uh, you know, by these bots, maybe, maybe malicious, not sure exactly what to make of that, but, mm-hmm. but that, I thought that was kind of interesting. And that was, as I said, a, a blog post that apparently I missed when Graham posted it last summer. Mm-hmm. So it, it suggested that, um, these accounts were ones that were programmed, were generated basically as dummy accounts, perhaps to use it for creating spamming messaging or something like that. Um, I, I, it looks like the blog refers to email, so maybe you know, uh, email accounts that were generated programmatically to be able to support a spamming campaign or something along those lines. Uh, that's certainly a possibility. I think it's probably worth pointing out that um, the uh, the information that's available. Maybe associated with a you know a limited set of victim 
organizations that the passwords are stolen from, so to speak. So I, I, I don't think it would necessarily be fair to make a general statement that is the industry in general isn't protect, you know, doing what needs to be done. But it appears at least one of these organizations that was breached could have known about this a little bit better. Although by right. the, the, we don't have the other information to really know. That is, how do you identify that those accounts were spamming accounts? Knowledge of the password presumably isn't something that would be available <laughs> to be able to find that out. And so it's it you know we're we're kind of doing some hindsight type analysis at this point. But you know there probably there possibly was something that could be done. Well, and so the, these are this is a set of passwords that were published that you know that were breached and published. So the you know where they got them, the the websites that where they got them, you know apparently weren't encrypting them or brute forced them fairly easily. They obviously weren't uh, requiring what I would think is the you know the lowest standard for for the kinds of passwords you'll let the user set. I, mm -hmm. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six. No website should allow you to set that as the password. Mm -hmm. That's you know. So, you know, obviously the these the ones that were breached here, the websites were not setting what I think should be minimum standards on uh, on web on password complexity. I, and I agree with you thoroughly as a security advocate. I think it becomes a balance between. Um, you know, I guess customer satisfaction in some cases, or their their tolerance. And you know, if it's a free email service, for example, you know, how how much do you really want to bicker with a customer about what they consider to be right or wrong? It's a it's a very difficult balance. And you're absolutely right from a security standpoint. It is the right thing to do. We don't know what the user interface was to say, you know, to at least encourage them to use good passwords or not. Yeah, I think that. I, I don't know that this is the case, but I think that does help. Because, you know, a lot of yeah. these sites now, as you're typing the password, and they tell you, you know, weak, good, yeah. you know, great, or whatever. I don't know, I don't know the descriptions like they interface. use. But, That's like, they will good. tell you, so you get some idea of, like, well, this password's not good enough yet. At Let least guilty in to do something a little bit better. special characters yeah. in or something. Well, let's be fair, those aren't all using the same algorithm. Either. No, they aren't. They're really right. not. No. So, mm -hmm. You could, you could type AAAA for, like, 14 or 20 characters. Some of them will say, fantastic. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's not the same as having, a, you know, a mix of, of different character sets. So. At least they didn't make the top 10. Yeah, true. <laughs> 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 okay, Jim. Anything else? No, no. I, <laughs> you know, we we see these, and now that it's the beginning of the year, we're seeing wrap ups for 2016. We see these yeah. reports periodically, and you know, it's another one that I thought was worth uh, mentioning. I have not looked, and sometime in the next you know month or two, I probably should look at see what's hitting our our honeypots for. Mm -hmm what passwords people are guessing, but that's you know, a different set. So we'll yeah. talk about that some other time. All right, very good. Well, not to worry, we're not done with the topic of passwords. And Matt, mm -hmm. what happens when you learn about passwords that are used? You use them everywhere else. Yeah, you use yeah, them else. You do. <laughs> okay, this is really interesting. Um, this was a new term for me, credential stuffing. Yeah. This is a blog post on shape security, and they also have like a, 
a credential spill report that came out this year. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of credential stuffing is taking sets of already exposed credentials, like the ones that we were just talking about in the last story. You know, take the username and password. And if the username is an email address, which is used, you know, pretty much everywhere, like I may have seven or eight accounts or a hundred, you know, associated with my personal email address. Mm -hmm. Which means that people can go to the other sites and say, well, Matt might have an account here. Maybe he used the same password again and mm -hmm. try it there and see if it works. And then you've got two accounts. But you can do this on mass. You can load it into software. Uh, the one in particular that they mentioned is called Sentry MBA. Mm -hmm. And it's basically an interface that people can drop lead credentials into, point it at a bunch of different websites, and try them all at once. Yeah. So it's not even just one. It's like, psh you know, it's it's hundreds, you, and they'll you know the the software will do in such a way that it doesn't trip the alarms for brute forcing that most sites will have mm -hmm. set up. Um, but yeah, you could try one week credential across a whole bunch of different sites, and I guess it has a user community around it because you know it's the same general idea, but the interfaces to every single site have to be individually mm -hmm. programmed. You know, maybe there's an API, or maybe there's a web interface, or some other way of getting that credential test done. But the number of sites that support it is actually pretty staggering. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really kind of interesting and, and probably one of the scarier things I've seen in a while. But it, the, the point is that, you know, once the credential is out in the open, expect it to be tried on all these different sites. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole underground market of people selling these creds to each other. And they may have an interest in a particular website that you, you may be using. Um, the, the statistics that they mentioned was that of the credential breaches in 2016, anywhere from 0.1% to 2% um, of those credentials get reused successfully on other sites. Mm -hmm. That reuse of yeah. those credentials opens up a whole other avenue of fraud on whatever those yeah. sites are for. Maybe it's a shopping site, maybe it's your, your credit card or your bank. Yeah. You know, so it's really important that people don't reuse these credentials. And I think this is one of the strongest arguments for it, mm -hmm. is that you know someone will say, well, maybe who's really gonna go and try my password on all these different sites? Well, they're going to try yeah. everybody's passwords on all these different sites mm -hmm. automatically with minimal amounts of effort and pretty significant payoff. Yeah. You know, I, and I think the significance of the payoff is, uh, is, is you, you can, in a sort of a qualitative measure, by looking at the level of sophistication that exists, it's depressingly impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so I think that's the kind of, you know, the fact that they've gone through all of this work and are, and clearly the folks that are building this tool are monetizing that activity yep. is an indicator that it is being successful for organizations that have an interest in basically gaining access, unauthorized access to users' accounts, mm -hmm. most likely for fraud type activities where they can monetize their, their accesses in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Or phishing attacks. Spamming activities, those yeah. types of things as well. Yeah. Sure. That's the whole long tail of that economy that any value of, of a compromised credential, mm -hmm. you know, people will find a way to squeeze that last little drop out. So. Yeah. And this is where the two factor authentication really can pay off. Even yeah. if it's the what, what I call pseudo two factor or the two channel authentication where you might use a messaging service and an email service and, and, uh, and parallel to each other, it mm -hmm. provides uh, two channels for the authentication. Right, right, pardon me, a password as well as a messaging service or something like that for mm -hmm. the uh, for the login, it would help to thwart this kind of issue, but that doesn't mean those things can't be bypassed. That is, there are if they if somebody's really being targeted, that's uh, that's probably not going to right work. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, very good, thank you, Matt, and uh, 
Jim, your story led into uh, into this very well. Both uh, very important topics for folks to be paying attention to. And you know, if you're in, involved in an enterprise, I think uh, making sure that these kinds of messages get out to the folks in your organization is very important too. So, on a little bit of a different note here, you know, we've talked a lot about staying on the mainstream app stores, and uh, so this is a uh, a story that had come out. It was from Engadget.com, and uh, they were basically pointing out that. They're, they're ordering, that is China, the government of China, is ordering app store registration. And so one of the factors that is involved here is, as I understand it, the Google App Store is not available in China. So folks that are on Android devices, and I'm not sure if Apple has a similar situation or not, but they're really basically forced to third-party app stores. And one of the observations is that the quality uh, of the apps is not as closely monitored, not as closely right, controlled sure for security. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the, either even just the quality of the apps, perhaps. Mm -hmm. That is, if it's getting really bad ratings and people complaining for one reason or another, they might not be motivated to take it off. I think the sort of the market control that exists in the mainstream app stores is, you know, you go to the Apple App Store and there's some association between that app and the Apple organization. You go to the Google App Store and there's some association between the app that you get and Google. And if somebody's complaining, you know, this is a piece of garbage, it shouldn't be here, it's insecure, it's causing, you know, problems, or it's malware, you would expect them to take it off. I think in the third party space there isn't necessarily that close of a binding or not as significant of a motivation. And so that's one of the reasons here that it would make sense. I think it's generally a good thing that uh, they're asking to register, register the app store so that the security of that can be monitored better. Uh, but there's a downside to this, there's a counterpoint. That is, um, you know, they could use it for censorship, that is control which apps are in the app stores and how information flows in those, or, or perhaps to, uh, you know, control access to apps or eliminate apps that don't facilitate monitoring that's desired in, that, in certain countries. So mm. that's, I think, one of the trade-offs that fundamentally exists between providing good security and um, you know, providing perhaps freedom of speech is that uh, making sure that the controls aren't uh, overreaching. But I wanted, go ahead. I'm gonna, I'm gonna counterpoint this uh, pretty hard. <laughs> so oh, Brian Krebs' book, um, Spam Nation, I think it was, yeah. he talks about, about underground markets mm -hmm. and the fact that they aren't regulated, but the reason that they are, there's a pressure to excel within those markets and kick out bad vendors and the same sorts of things that you would expect a legitimate app market to do is because the reputation is so high in those underground markets. Yeah, if you lose your reputation in those markets, it's you'd mm -hmm. definitely, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if there isn't that same kind of pressure even without the idea of being on a government list of, of legitimate app markets to clean up a market. You, you would hope own. there is. Yeah. Uh, the observation is apparently is not, and I can support that with a little bit of data here, and then we can kind of Go come ahead. back to your point. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to at least substantiate this point. And, you know, it's been my perception for some time that the issue of security is is more significant in the Asian markets. Now, there are probably a lot of things that influence that, mm -hmm. um, but if you compare, and this is actually a, a, a graphic from the uh, second quarter, 2016. Um, IT threat evolution report from Kaspersky, 
and it's basically showing the distribution, and this is a tax, so we need to put that in the, I don't, I don't want to misuse the data here. This is showing a tax against devices, but U.S. significantly better relative to, uh, say, India and China. Now, it's been my impression that part of that is because the prominence of the third-party app markets mm -hmm. that allows that type of activity to take place or facilitates it more. Okay. I could be completely wrong about that, but that's been my impression. And so that's why at least the notion of being able to register the app stores and at least have a little closer eye on it would be helpful. And perhaps it's not, but No, that's, that's a point. good point. And I'm, I'm trying to, to distinguish the two in my mind is what's yeah. different about an illicit market for something like the, on the dark web as opposed mm -hmm. to an app store. And I think part of the app store problem is that it's very easy to add more malware to the app store in an automated fashion and poison mm -hmm. it very quickly. Mm -hmm. And it only takes one person to do that and it takes an entire team of app store developers and support folks to keep cleaning up that market. Right. It's yeah, a little bit harder, I think, true, in a yeah. market where you're dealing with individuals as opposed to um, Maybe it's maybe it's the same. Maybe it's maybe so, overstating you know, you, it. But. You may be right. That's a, that's a contributing factor. Again, I this is not a scientific study. I, I, mm -hmm. I try to point out where the, it's part of my impression here. And uh, your point is absolutely right. I, my my personal impression: there certainly are security analysts associated with you know looking at the apps and validating them. I think the review space or that having the customer feedback is an important aspect of it as well. Okay. And uh, because it, you know, if you, the complaints start going up, I, I think it's a mechanism that can be used. I don't mm. know to what extent it is. So, well, yeah. it, you, perfectly valid points. I don't think it's a conclusive point here. Well, and one of the issues with with China in particular, since the Google App Store isn't available there, is you know, for those of you who've used an Android device, if you don't, you know. If you want to load something from a third-party app store, you have to go click on the allow third-party whatever. Mm -hmm. But once you do that, then it is much easier for malware to install additional apps yeah. on your device in the background. And you know, so that probably is also contributing to the you know China here being in red on that graphic that you've got up. Very good point. Yes, absolutely. If you go in and turn the turn security off feature off, it's it's off <laughs> off. It doesn't prompt you every time, yeah. which it probably right, should. Yeah. yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. Okay. Japan's well, anyway. doing really good though. That's Japan's my observation. doing pretty well. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> the uh, they're in the green here, and uh, considering it's not green. exactly a small population per capita, it's very large. One, one of the uh, other aspects of this, by the way, is I'm not sure that this has been normalized for population, or, or the population right. of devices. I think they're okay. just counting here and then using that as a reference point. So, uh, it, it, I mean, that's obviously a factor to be considered. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, on YouTube, as well as on iTunes as a podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And uh, Jim, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. John, yep. Matt, thank you for joining us today. I'm Brian Rexrobe. We'll be back with a new episode next week. <laughs> and until then, keep your network safe. views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.